My name is Carrie, and you are listening to From the Hip. I'm going to be trying a different technical setup today, which is that I'm holding my microphone in my hands. It's probably going to be kind of difficult to manage, pardon me, manage the noises that I'll end up making from touching it or changing hands, but I've ended up leaning towards it all the time. Don't want to do that. Today's topic is pretty unexpected for me. I didn't see myself coming into this area uh, on this show, and I I had these amazing ideas occur to me, or ideas about ideas, and I thought, I, I have to record this, I maybe have to research this later, and and put a lot more thought into this, because I... When I thought about the fact that we, that our sexual organs have the capacity for intense pleasure creation, as in, as in we derive intense pleasure from the sensations of our sexual organs, I thought about, wow, we have that and it's not by mistake. I thought... In, this is this might be a researched topic. This this might be someone's work inside of a university somewhere. And there there might be conferences about it, but it's not a common enough uh, underlayment. I should say underlayment. It's not a common enough foundational idea that should be getting brought up over and over and over and over again. We, we take for granted in, in so many conversations that sex ought to be pleasurable. But, you know, as in, if you are involved in it, right? Well, when I realized our entire species is fairly unique in the, the, uh, the composition of, of that sensational um, faculty... And that that's really interesting in itself. I thought there's there's more to this that needs to be looked into. So what do I mean? I mean that if if we have the capacity for sexual pleasure, that means there's a there's an evolutionary force behind it. No matter how you believe we came here, whether it's through hundreds of millions of years of evolution from unicellular beings. Or you think that we are, you know, some sort of offshoot mutant from alien intervention. Or you think that God created Adam whole. And we're going to come back to that story because it's very interesting. Any one of those um, implies some sort of intention. No matter how we want to mean that word of intention, implies some sort of intention as far as this is what our nature seems to have required us to be. 
And I think a simple aspect, simple reason for for our um, for us to have sexual pleasure is because we're beings of choice, and we need an incentive system to push us toward having sex. You know, it certainly isn't an option for it to be painful. And if it, if it were just non-painful but non-pleasurable, uh, it still wouldn't be something that we'd want to engage in, right? I mean, just just the the desire for children to appear, um, you know, maybe maybe it's. The, the question is, did, did eventually, you know, at some point, did the did we need to develop these these pleasure capacities in order to mate often enough to produce enough offspring to to uh, expand the population, or did pleasure capacities um, arise from from the fact that we just started doing it more often. I, I don't know. I didn't, but my point was not to chase down the, the chicken or the egg of this question, but to, to begin somewhere in the middle, which is the fact that it is, uh, we do have these organs whose functions include intense bodily um, pleasure, you know, bodily sensation that that is enjoyable, and this really matters to me. I it's like, well, if it's not by accident, which it there's no reason for it to be by accident. Um, then, then not only how did we get here. How did we get here is an interesting question, but where is it taking us? And, and when I joined that last question, where where is our capacity for sexual pleasure taking us into the future, or where could it take us? Or what about our sexual capacities should we be considering that 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 uh, might tell us? where we should be headed as a species. I don't just mean this biologically, I, I mean this sociologically. Very quickly it became a, a, um, a much bigger question in my mind because when I combine those sorts of questions, you, you can't overlook the fact that sex is not always pleasurable. And I'm speaking mostly, um, according to anecdotes, from women, right? So, so in some considerable amount of sexual encounters, sexual intercourse is not very enjoyable at all for a woman. It's almost always enjoyable for a man, as far as I can gather. So that that is an interesting problem. If our sexual organs are made to be pleasurable, to, 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 to give, give rise to the, the, the pleasure that we experience, then what does it say 
about um, persons who are engaging in non-mutual, non-mutually pleasurable sex. What does it say about, um, you know, what, what are the consequences of that? And, and what can we learn otherwise? Because, you know, fundamentally, if you're having, if you're having sex that is not pleasurable, but your organs are made to, you know, to, to, to give you sensation that would be wonderfully enjoyable and but you're not experiencing that it's really like hey you know why why is this important part of your life not living up to your own um, physiological endowment and so I, I had some questions about the, as I'm, I, you know, I've been just looking at these questions and, and, the, and the big overarching question is what implications does the, the, the characteristics of our uh, sexual intercourse have on human evolution? Does, does pleasurable sex play a role in the progress of humanity one way or another? What is pleasurable sex as an, an actor, an evolutionary force? Really quickly, I, I, I came up with some basic biological answers, which is that one, pleasurable sex is meant to lead to more successful rearing of offspring. So that's one thing that I need to explain. And Two, more pleasurable sex is likely to lead to more sex and more, more pleasurable sex, which is, you know, likely to lead to not only more offspring, but to offspring by a certain type of parents or a specific male parent. The male parent being this likely um, decision maker, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, is, is the male in, in the sexual encounter is being the, the variable of whether it's mutually pleasing or not. And, and so what are the, the, you know, the, the correlated traits in males who are uh, make good sex partners? Who you know? How do these men act in the rest of their lives? And and not only that, but what does the the instance of a pleasurable sexual encounter signal to a woman? Really, really, I thought immensely insightful questions to be asking, the answers that came back came back fairly quickly. And these are these are assertions, these are suggestions, these are hypotheses at this point. I am I'm far removed from the university uh, 
academic mindset. And so this is not a research paper. There's going to be no major citations, etc. This is me putting forward uh, um, quick conclusions or, again, assertions from a moment of insight. And so very quickly, what I think that that uh, a woman's positive sexual experience signals to her is that the man, the male, the man is paying attention to her. And we call sexual intercourse this 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 event that is supposed to, you know, is generally be about reproduction. Across the entire uh, animal kingdom, it is sex between humans is, is exceptional, not just in the fact that we do it for pleasure or that we can have pleasure at all, you know, sets us apart. It's also sets, we're set apart by length of time. It's a relatively long time across quite a number of mammals anyway, that humans have sex, even if it's only two minutes that we're counting. You know, if we said, yeah, two minutes is a baseline minimum. You know, if, if, we, if we said that, that's still a relatively long time for a male to present. So it, it, it's ridiculous how exceptional this event is, biologically speaking. And then throw on the fact that we call this reproductive act, we call it making love. We ascribe our highest conceptions of our human feelings um, and of action, love. That's what we call our reproductive event our pre -cre you know, our, our sex we call making love. Now, obviously not everyone is in on that language. Uh, some people think that's overly cheesy or that uh, quite a number of people think that, that sex is not something to be, um, to be admired at all. And, and they come at that from very different perspectives that's not just that's not just a kind of puritanic perspective that's also a you know a sort of nihilistic um perspective or a you know, something something that i find common in in a kind of a subjectivist mindset um so I'm not going to go down that path the point is this thing that we call making love to, to put it a little more deeply than the woman being signaled that the man is paying attention to her, that, she, that she's seen by him. In addition, I think that, this, that the event of sexual pleasure for a woman is supposed to be signaling, evolutionarily, biologically speaking, it's supposed to be signaling to her subliminally that she is loved. This is a 
this is an earth-shattering sort of idea when when you think back across time to um, you know to to some point in a distant past or maybe maybe even maintained today in some indigenous tribes but but you know some point in a distant past when the concept of love did not exist we had probably already developed our organic um, capacities for for sexual pleasure so if i'm on to something and and that is an idea that is supposed to be passed along like if we're supposed supposed to enjoy this then then it's really important like if we both have capacities for sexual pleasure both sexes both genders if we both do then we both need to enjoy it there's something actually wrong if we don't so and, and and you need to think think about this for a moment if it was only important that males had um had an incentive toward sex because only males had a pleasure incentive then there would be consequences to come with that and so something about something about the the, the forces of nature said hey women need to enjoy this every bit as much as men or you know they need an incentive to participate in the act so that they're there so that they do and so that children are born this is really 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 important because not only because i want modern day women to have pleasurable sex but because in this evolutionary line did we you know if a woman had a choice that is in her mind worked as as a choice making machine rather than than an instinct uh run machine and and thus you know hormonally bound to engage in sex then then the pleasure aspect would not need to be turned on or you know if she didn't have a choice pardon me if she does have a choice if if she needs to to choose to engage in sexual intercourse then she needs to have this this feeling turned on well there's an important thing that happens after that sex isn't fast in humans i've already said it's it's uh not it's not something that can be done in a few seconds okay well why is that and there's a critical piece when a woman can choose that is um there's more than one partner to choose from she discriminates um and and there's a whole other necessary conversation to be had about rape because that takes the choice out and it's a competing evolutionary force and and there's also another kind of middle ground evolutionary force which is the the hypoth- you know the non-pleasurable sex that that also moves in some area you know it, it, it's, it's there's there's a spectrum that it's related to in between pleasurable sex and rape so all that discussion needs to be had so i so i think there's there's an important thing there's an important decision for a woman to make is is who am i going to have sex with you know even if i'm a um even if i you know if a woman is in in some jungle tribe that is um 
you know, non-monogamous, and and she decides that she'll have sex, you know, six or seven days a week, but she's still got to choose. You know, if she's only going to do it once a day. She's even if she's going to do it twice a day. You know, she's still got to choose who that's going to be on any given day, or and who it's going to not be. Maybe she's learned that she won't meet up with a certain guy. All right. Well, so she's going to meet up with certain guys probably because it's a pleasurable experience. In in this most extreme example of the non-monogamous jungle tribe, you know, it's going to be probably guys. Well, we live in a much different world and women um, generally are choosing the most competent, smart, caring, humorous men that that they can find and 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 they they compete with other women to to choose that top one available now the and the, within i should add characteristics probably women check for sexual compatibility and again this is not a this is not just a bland discussion at all it's it's immense because what is sexual compa- compatibility it's being able to have sexual intercourse in a way that is pleasing or, you know, or it's, it's um, consistently pleasing. It's consistently very pleasing. It's, it's, um, and so there's some, there's characteristics of such events that, that are very meaningful, that have a tremendous weight in the, in the woman's mind, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, And, I'm saying no doubt because I'm a, not a woman, but I think I can rely on the the minimal information that I'm dealing with. Uh, there's characteristics of those events that signal to her more, more. And so I'm going to just reiterate that I think that those characteristics consist of the message that, she, that he is paying attention, that she is seen by him. And... Because why? Why why is that message sent when when sex is pleasurable? Well, it's because the message could also not be sent by the by the event not being pleasurable. It could totally come and go without being something that that she wants to do again or very often. And that's just and so that's it. There's this sort of some pretty much I mean I, I understand there's a spectrum, but you know, in the end there's a yes or a no. Was it or was it not? And it was is the answer that affirms that he's paying attention. And it's this opportunity for a woman when making love to to realize, to, to be shown that he loves me. I think that's the implicit message. You know, if, you know, she knows, she knows that she can become pregnant and become a mother and she knows you know what the stakes are and if she's going to do that she wants the best indication she can get that the man who's going to look after her children loves her and this isn't meant to be an episode about love it's meant to be an episode about evolution but let's take a break
So the questions keep on coming up. When you think about female pleasure, there's clearly a time frame that is not quite <laughs> synced up with what we uh, currently think of as the male's time frame, right? And and then you think, well, the male isn't again still has this ridiculously long time, relatively speaking, in terms of of delivering the sperm. You know, a couple of minutes is a is a long time across a lot of species. I realize not all of them, even even pigs, would take um, a minute or more uh, in a lot of cases. But and I realize that some species would be for for several minutes. Um, but I still think two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes is a pretty long amount of time relative uh, across the animal kingdom, and it's a very long time for number of offspring per minute, um, you know, per, per time interval. What do I mean by that? A butterfly might mate for multiple minutes as well, but a butterfly is going to lay eggs in the hundreds or thousands based on that one mating. And so for humans, that number is rather small, usually just one. And so so that's a that's a very interesting thing to me. Now I know I understand it's not like the male is transferring the embryos to the female, but I, I think that it's something to be paid attention to because because if you go into the insect kingdom, you've got you know you pr- got probably you know some very prolonged or might have some very prolonged uh, mating times because mating intervals durations, I should say, just because of, of that um, sort of arrangement where there's a need to fertilize many, 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 many eggs um, and probably is, is a quicker process for insects than the conception, um, you know, the, the coitus to conception time frame is in humans and, and other mammals. So anyway, I'm trying to, to play fair here without being a zoologist. So where were we? So once again, the time interval suggests to me that women are supposed to enjoy sex too. Um, men have this penis that's you know works a certain way and 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 it does what it does and it works fairly quickly or it can. And women have this opposite organ, the vagina, and and the clitoris, and and so that works a certain other way that is much more dependent on time, um, especially because there's there's adjust like there's a, an adjustment period um, to begin with, and so but nevertheless, the woman has the capacity; she's designed for pleasure. And so I think the length of time, you know, and the, and the fashion in which intercourse takes place, which you know doesn't have much parallel really uh, to it again, again across a lot of mammals, is designed for her pleasure. This just is so our biology is demanding that sex be pleasurable, and yet we've had um, we basically have doctrines, you know, that that insist that that. Um, generally against this idea that that sex should be pleasurable or that you know that that ought to be a 
a primary concern um, about sex. I, 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 again, don't want to go on a tangent there, but there's just a, there's, there's too many ideas that seem to displace the natural explanation I'm trying to put forward here, which, which is it not only, you know, it's, it's a necessity. Judging by our design as humans, it's, it's not a mere luxury, but it's a necessity of our life experience that sex be pleasurable, pleasureful. And, and insofar as we have this deep, deep well of potential for sex to be pleasurable, that sort of asks another question is, well, should we go there? And, you know, because if we have the capacity to, to go there, like, why do we have it? And so, you know, I'm, I'm without being too overly complicated about it, I'm going to say, well, hey, we have it so that we can go there. I am, I am not even opening this up really to questions of, of morality or kind of meta, meta ethics here, um, on, on, uh, for, at least for anybody who's got a negative answer. It's simple. I'll say it again. We have the capacity so that we can go there, all right? Drop your ideas about temptation. Drop your ideas about um, empty, vacuous lust, okay? That's not what this is about. This isn't about acting. This is not a conversation about acting irrationally, act, being loose with your, with your life and your emotions and your mental health and your body's health for for wild sex. I'm just talking about the the, the matter of the your your body's need. Or yeah, definitely that's what I'm talking about because it's it's your body's need for a biological reason. And so this is this is a conversation about at least just that. It's not it's not a moral one at all. And so. So, you know, arguments to the contrary, should we go there? Should we experience sexual pleasure? Cannot, please don't, please don't base them on your idea of needing to tame lizard brain desires, you know, especially through some arbitrary lens. Just look at yourself for a moment through the, the lens of a biological creature, a, a creature that does evolve. There's no doubt about that. There's no there's no question. We can't just look at who we are as physical bodies alone. Our, our the because you know our, our physical bodies are attached to you know include our brain, you know, and our brain is very intricately um, wired to our bodies obviously and, and contained within our brain is our mind insofar as we have been able to understand consciousness. So our consciousness is very much attached to our bodies, and we are, so we are passing on so much more than just our physical appearance, right? We're passing on some forms of intelligence that we don't call instinct per se, but um, because we really don't have much of that beyond the instinct to suckle at the breasts, when we quickly run out of of patterns that that help have us just auto react, right? So we we learn everything, and what we are now passing on in the form of you know in the form of knowledge is is on an evolutionary scale. 
of knowledge and technology that's shaping our new generations in the first year that they're born, or from the first year that they're born. And so, so the, the, the aspects of human evolution are immense beyond biology, but they cycle back and forth. They cycle from our bodies outward into the world that we create from our, from our mental objects, and then they cycle back into us through other people back into us, and they cycle into new generations. So, so the capacity for sexual enjoyment is something that likely over time or stretches of time was enhanced. And the necessity has never gone away. No matter what the climate of, of humanity's state, you know, whether we're talking about war, whether we're talking about famine, whether we're talking about uh, just oppression, whether we're talking about the the golden light of freedom, any of those areas required, any of those those eras, I meant to say, required sex to be pleasurable. It it's it has been immutable, and and so then the you know at this point, I don't think that we could breed it out of humans. <laughs> we we couldn't breed that capacity out, and so it's been bred up. And it's this thing, it's this, it's a function of our bodies. And it's remarkable that we, that I, that I've never at least witnessed a conversation along these lines. Obviously, there are whole magazines and books written, you know, filled with, um, you know, advice, especially to women about how to make sex better. Uh, and yet we, we gloss over the question of, why is it supposed to be better? Why is it supposed to be good? You know, why is it supposed to, you know, why why is there an option, etc.? But but it's mostly the how, you know, what is it about us that makes it necessary? And if it's necessary, then where do we go from here? Now, it does seem like as, you know, as long as we're in an era where so many women go sexually unfulfilled or sexually disappointed uh, with their partners, it seems like we're, you know, that we're going to be missing something. I'm, am I taking a big leap for you? I don't really, I haven't felt that I, since I started having these ideas two days ago, I, I haven't felt that I've taken a leap at all. In fact, I think this is a missing link in humanity's struggles is is uh, lack of, se- of of female sexual pleasure. This is not a commentary on your life, by the way. Okay, this is this is a an optimistic examination of the future based on the fact that for much of our history. Um, Mutual sexual pleasure was not uh, very highly, you know, occurring. I think I th- I, we have we have plenty of anecdotal evidence to say that obvi- that it was happening. We have also plenty of evidence to suggest that it often is not and has not been about female pleasure. Has not included it. You know, we've got. I I, I don't I don't think that we have enough data collected. I think that it's all out there, but I don't think that we have enough data collected about the the women's side of sex for the centuries past. 
I think that I, I feel rather safe in assuming that there's there's been a lot of unfulfillment. And one of the reasons I feel safe in assuming that is because there's so much lack of knowledge, male knowledge today, about that being the case still today, is that so many of the sexual partners that various men have had have been unsatisfied. They don't really know. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's different reasons for this. This part, you know, one being just lack of communication and, and, and another being, uh, you know, women are taking signals from the encounter and, and because they, you know, and I'm going to speak, I'm, I'm speaking based on a lot of women that I know. Okay. Because women tend to craft stories about what happens. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're, they're overly creative. I'm just saying because women tend to interpret actions and facial expressions and, and subtext, uh, they, they tend to interpret it and let, let that be um, a summary rather than, than asking a question that would, you know, the, the question being, do you love me? And her summary understanding coming from the actions up to then. And now I know that's, I'm, I'm it's, it's a really interesting cross section there where I use that word love and, and the example of do you love me? Maybe it's a little bit too complicated uh, to include that phrase because again, that's part of what I'm trying to address here is that I think that, that uh, female sexual pleasure is very much tied to that idea is um, it's it's this experience. It's a subliminal, subtextual experience to to feel loved because your body feels loved. How about that? So um, this is really important, and it's overdue now for me to kind of shift gears and get into the meaning of things as I come at this from a Jordan Petersonian perspective, which is is looking at the ways we act out metaphors, um, you know, that we subconsciously act out dramas, and uh, and what the stories that we tell have to say about our underlying ideas. Jordan Peterson loves to talk about the human eye in mythology. In his most famous, uh, or most one of his most viewed lectures that is posted to YouTube, he talks about the Egyptian mythology and the Egyptians worshipping the human eye. That's the eye of Horus, etc. Is, is stood for something. And he talks about how uh, the Mesopotamian god, I'm going to forget this, his name, Marduk. Marduk is made the king god. And part of the reason that you see that he's qualified to be king is because he has eyes all around his head. You know, it's, it's Peter's contention that at this point in humanity's history, we weren't, we, we didn't function with conceptions like 
pays attention. The one that pays attention, we 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 understood though that attention um, was conceptualized as a function of the eyes. You know, you you see that someone's paying attention through their eyes, looking at their eyes. They pay attention, you know, tr primarily perhaps with their eyes. And so that's how you get this representation of a man with eyes all around his head. He's the one who pays attention to things. The one that you need to, you know, the one that pays attention is the one that you need. The one who observes is the one that you need to be in a position like king. One who can observe enough in order to be wise enough to make decisions about the breadth of things that, that that kings were expected to do, even though we're talking about just the king of gods in the case of Marduk. But to further this point, you know, he, Peterson points out the eye on on the uh, the, the, the top of the uh, pyramid on the dollar bill. And he, you know, he loves to talk about this subject so much that it's suspicious. But regardless of why that symbology is symbolism is on the dollar bill, he points out how it's it's on top of this pyramid. It's on top of a hierarchy of things, right? That that's what that pyramid signifies is is hierarchy in our culture, and. It's this chief principal thing is the eye at the top that signifies attention. And it's and he points out it's it's part it's at the top, but it's it's not the rest. It's something that is above all the rest of it. It's chief and 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 you need it to access the the, the rest of the character that one needs. You know, maybe maybe everything is limited by one's attention, one's commitment to observance, and and so as I continued to think about, sex is supposed to be pleasurable. Sex takes time for people. It's like, well, why sh again? Why should it take time? Well, one should take time so that it's more pleasurable for a woman. But what else is going on? It's intimate. You know, you go on minutes and, and what are you going to do? There's a good chance you're going to look each other in the eye. You know, you, you've, you have, you're, you're close together. You know, we, we're constructed such that, you know, it, we can do it any which way. Now, a lot of animals aren't facing one another. But we, we of all animals who have attention to give and two eyes in the front of our head not to the sides we have the option of doing it face to face for minutes at a time is it any wonder that i should conclude well the woman who feels pleasure feels attended to that attention is paid that she's seen and you know luckily luckily she is but just because eyeballs are involved doesn't mean that she feels solely, fully seen and attended to. But think about it. She, she feels it in her body. A feeling of her body now becomes associated with the man who is involved. 
and and we're and I hopefully I'm not the first one to give this a a treatment of this sort, which is that this is evolutionarily huge. Hope, hopefully, there's some scholar somewhere <laughs> who, who's who's done this several times over, or scholars. You know, we, we function so much as human beings through our eyes. So once again, through what I'm highlighting in this discussion is that it's, you know, the, the preferable among men as, as uh, sexual partners is the man who pays attention. The, just, just like the, the king or the, or the best uh, among all people it are the ones who pay attention. You know, the, that's the trait above traits is, is to pay attention. And so, well, what do we know? We know that there's competing, you know, we know that there's competing um, types of sex out there, pleasurable or not. So, we, you know, we have competing groups of actors on this front. And, and so the, the fact that a woman can experience not having attention paid to her, she can feel physically unpleasured, feel that she is ignored, you know, feel a lack of satisfaction, right? She, you know, she can come up empty. She can have an experience of underwhelm as the alternative of having being overwhelmed, uh, have experiencing ecstasy. Which, which does she choose? Well, it turns out that she's choosing the, the man who pays attention, the man who's, who's listening to her, the man who is um, coming to her, meeting her. And what is that feeling? that intense feeling in that moment. If I'm right, it's love. It's, it's this element of love that we haven't probably even come to consider, much less understand. It's automatic. And it's felt physically felt somehow. That's that's the summary, at least, of the experience. I once listened to a book. I don't, I don't think I really knew what I was getting into, but uh, it was called The Way of... Jeez. Uh, it was The Way of the Superior Man, and and the, the book was oriented about masculine, uh, you know, excelling in masculinity and man's relationship to a woman, and it's characterized as as that of the observer. Over and over again, the author used some a phrase like, you know, a woman is like the weather, and the, the man's job is to observe it. And that has popped up over and over and over again in, in different ways, mostly on the Fermi through, through the point of observer. It's not it's because it's a role I embraced 
um, is to, you know is to be observant, or you know at least at one point I recognized what it, what it means to be observant because that was that was evidently who I was, and so you know, but that doesn't always that that wanes some. You can have you can have your attention diverted, and therefore you're observing too little of the something important, such as yourself, right? And so, you know, observance is this this massive um, to be to be one who pays attention is this massive trait. It's this massively important. It's it's immensely important among and across people. And and there's this suggestion there's that it's rare. And maybe it's not rare, but it's not automatic. It's not everyone's virtue, and and so I think it's it's very 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 interesting that that this observance element is tied to the the masculine principle, and that in order and and that because a woman's sexual satisfaction is not automatic by the mere action of sex, I think it's really interesting that that uh, um, it becomes very much a male's role in in sexual intercourse to be observant, to pay attention and to act on those observances in order to bring about female satisfaction. Uh, I would hope to be able to just head off any, you know, any conversations about sexism in this conversation because like I'm, I'm really trying to really just trying to recognize that this is a relationship, the sexual, the sexual event is a relationship between two people and and so there's there's every need for that to be a negotiated and mutually negotiated event and um you know mutually participatory right so it has everything to do with that and and this that's what this conversation is about nothing to do with anybody's ideas about um usurping power or um responsibility for anything so there we are you know the 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 guy who pays attention is the is the one who physically um physically delivers on a woman's pleasure and that's great from a simple from a simple biological aspect in that if that's so she's more likely to have sex with him therefore his children are more likely to be born and maybe more likely to be, you know, you know, if we're talking about tribes, uh, indigenous tribes, um, non-monogamous tribes today, or any, or I guess any other non-monogamous situation that I'm not very set up in, but where where chi- where women uh, are discriminatory and choosy, that means that the the more attentive men in the society are the the fathers of the society. Um, and that's for a monogamous basis as well. Hopefully, that the, that sort of choice can be exercised. And and there's the the, the backside. You know, there's the alternative um, evolutionary forces, non non um, pleasurable sex that is kind of captured due to due to um, marriage often, um, or just some other sort of uncomfortable situation. And then there's also the competing force of rape, which doesn't just come with a genetic lineage like Genghis Khan, but comes with uh, sociological elements. Um, you know, especially if we were to think about that, the Genghis Khan scale um, matter of rape would, you know, could, would have tremendous fallout likely for that society in the immediate years, which is going to shape 
who those people are. You know, it's going to shape the 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 lives of those offspring in in various ways. And so then I think, but but this is really worth digging into. What if a society became genetically dominated by you guessed it, the guys who pay attention, the guys who are sexually pleasing women? What if? What if? You know, and that was part of the relationships that were building the society. You know, if that pleasurable sex was only just part of good relationships, then 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 what's the society become built on? Becomes be, become how does a society move upward? I feel like I'm taking basically zero leaps here because when you really focus on this, you you get to see that that a society could spiral upward together. Just because, just starting with, because men paid attention to women's sexual needs, their pleasure. It's a, it's, it's, it's a hip, skip, hop, on a jump away from fruition, but no logical leap. You know, I, I, I guess you that we we would have to jump to a matter of statistical study to see what other traits correlate with those men, right? You know, are. Do those men also happen to be perfectly lazy, such that everything breaks down in one generation? <laughs> we wouldn't want that. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, it turned out that, statistically speaking, that the men who paid attention to women also happened to be men who paid attention in life in general, and were moving the world forward, then, then that would be really important. And so good sex, great sex, is an evolutionary force. Women shouldn't just be satisfied for attention. They should be satisfied for, you know, for great sex because it means something. It doesn't just mean that that's great sex. It means this is somebody who's paying attention to you. Now, I, I don't want to imply too much because I'm not keeping tabs on the various men who are good at sex. In fact, I'm not keeping tabs on anybody. So, but it's evident that a number of men don't care whether their sexual partners are satisfied or not, um, just based on the fact that that we have a question, you know, about it at all. And so obviously a great number of those guys though who are, are good in bed are actually not dependable um, in the rest of life, it's not a, it's definitely not a hundred percent correlation. It's just, you know, some people just can't be counted on to, you know, can't be trusted. Right. And so, uh, it's not, a, it's not a hundred percent correlation, but it is still an evolutionary force without being a hundred percent correlation because, because the attention is, is subliminally given the, you know, the, the, or, or, or communicated, I should say the attention very um, obviously and, and intrinsically is given. It's there. This man is paying attention to me. How do I know this? Well, my body is telling me. He's the, uh, he's the one inside of me, and my body is saying yes. I, <laughs> therefore, this is the truth. And, and I'm going to circle back again to the idea that this is a matter of love in the way in a, in a way that we're not paying enough attention to we haven't explored love as this intrinsic energetic event 
intrinsic and energetic event. It, it, there's this, there's this moment that of, of such satisfaction, of such immense ecstasy that there's more than, than, than mere physical, um, arousal going on there. There's something more communicated. And, and I, I, I think that we have a hint of this within our minds, but it, we're not we're not looking at it well enough to recognize it. And and so I I grew up in a, a Catholic school, and uh, it's not something that I want to be a part of anymore. And I haven't been for many years, but it it, it definitely is, you know so it has a big influence on ideas that I have come into contact with in and. One of them was just this, you know, was this anti-sex preaching that happened when we were in, you know, 13, 14 years old, 7th and 8th grade. And, you know, it's not something you should, you know, you only do it with the person you're married to. And, and, and a lot of this, a lot of this preaching that went on at that time, it wasn't necessarily religious. Like it wasn't about, it wasn't all religious as you say. It wasn't all about God says no, and, and the Pope says no, and et cetera, and you're going to go to hell. It was, hey, you're going to be miserable. Don't don't have sex, you know, because you're going to be really sad when your relationship is over. And as true as that may be, you know, for a 15-year-old, especially maybe a pregnant 15-year-old, it was going to be, and it's going to be devastating. I, I, I can't imagine. Um, as true as that is, it's it's too cliche. It doesn't it doesn't dig at the 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 reason that it's devastating. It's because something's really happened there. You know, if it were just a pure physical act, <laughs> then hey, what you know? Why are you so devastated? You know, why why is it why does it tend to be hard at least at least um, at least initially to to have sex with someone? on a one night stand and then not be kind of upset about it or to, you know, or to have sex and, and shortly thereafter break up. Why, why it, it does that, you know, hurt a person the way that it does. It's like, if it were just, if it were just a pure physical act, like, first of all, even the people who don't, wouldn't get broken up about that would, you know, still have issues of jealousy. You know, even people who say it, that's what I mean. Is I, I, I've had people various times tell me it's just sex. It's just, you know, it's just this thing we do. And it's like, yeah, but sure, go, you know, go go for that idea. But a few months from now, you're going to be uh, getting really upset with your friend for having sex with your ex. So so good good luck, you know, fooling yourself on that one. But so it's not just sex. There's something underneath there that that we're talking about. There's something more communicated. And what is it? It's it's love. And so we we had we had to watch this video when we were in 8th grade that that this of this woman going on for a good 40 50 minutes about uh, about the pains of of the after sex as a as a single teenager and she she would she would mockingly uh, shout this this uh, imitation of of teenage girls saying, "But we loved each other," and uh, and and really, you know, it's that's at stake. 
I, I, that's, that's something that is right there in the mix with, you know, with, with the necessity for, for sex to feel good, feel great, uh, be ecstatic about is, is, um, the, the communications that are automated into it. And, and so love is more than just this concept that we've come up with, uh, about the affections that we, oh, what do we, what, what do we do? We feel in our body, you know, we feel in our chest and in our stomachs and our shoulders and uh, in the skin between our eyes, you know, and, and our eyebrows and skin between our eyes and tops of our cheekbones, right? The tingling that comes through us. What is it? A feeling? A feeling? A real physical feeling in our bodies that we attach to this word love. We attach to this concept of the highest feeling possible, the highest affection, the highest attachment that we have to anyone. We call love a feeling, and we call sex making love. There was this scientist who was, you know, he was kind of made out to be a crackpot over time, but he did research on, on what he called orgone energy. And this this orgone energy is has been kind of conceptually linked over, over the decades to the orgasm. And so one of the next things for me to do is to do a little bit of investigation into the idea of, of energy transfer between two people and, and how it's related to orgasm. Mantak Chia talks about the male ejaculate as, as energy, and, and therefore men spend their energy when they ejaculate, you know, they, they dispense of it. And, and so he teaches men to, to not do that um, very often. And then, you know, you know, he makes the same point for women, but he says, you know, it's only, you know, once a month thing. And so my point in bringing that up is, is the energy side of that, is, is this transfer of energy thing that uh, may or may not be attached, you know, for, for a man is attached to his orgasmic event, usually. Not all, you know, this an option to not be. But, um, and, and so what is happening at this moment when when an orgasm is felt, especially if in the case of a man, you know, it's attached to his his uh, energy movement. It's just a question to be asked by yourself um, or later for me. But the the point of that exploration is that so much more is communicated subliminally than nothing. You know, that's the alternative. Is if you if you might be somehow reacting to this idea as just made up like the question is what's the alternative you're going to tell me that zero ideas come up when someone is not satisfied you can tell me that zero ideas come into someone's mind when they are satisfied nothing nothing is assumed nothing in this intense in you know from this intense moment of intense feeling bodily feeling you're going to tell me that none of those feelings are accompanied with conceptual uh labeling None of those feelings that are physically felt are going to be labeled as love, admiration, etc., or, or feeling admired, feeling seen. What does it mean to be, you know, to, to feel seen? It means to, to feel an object of attention. We like attention. It feels good. We like to be with people who make us feel good. Okay, so again, this is an evolutionary force. All these, all these feelings are an evolutionary force. And so the question becomes 
as I've, I've alluded to, the question is, does a, you know, does, does mutually beneficial, mutually pleasurable, pleasureful sex um, breed a new generation of attention, uh, of attention-giving people, boys and girls? That's just one question to consider. And, and I would say that the opportunity is definitely there because, again, one, just, just from a pure matter of satisfaction with relationships, that is more likely to accompany satisfaction with sex. So sex, you know, good, good sex is, is likely to, I think, have a, a tremendous um, weight on satisfaction with the relationship overall. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. There are relationships that break down because there's not enough attention paid in other circumstances. But I think that on the whole, it's still an evolutionary force, especially if if uh, childbearing consists, you know, arises before the relationship breaks down. At at, at minimum, a a a healthy sexual, you know, a, a pleasurable sexual relationship led to the creating of an offspring. Who is that, and and, and who is that child going to be? Is that going to be a man or woman someday who pays attention? Now, you know, there 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 could be a simple argument to counter to what I'm saying, which would be like, hey, you know, there's probably been plenty of good sex for the for this across the centuries. It's still got us a bunch of people who don't pay attention. It's like, well. Um, yeah, there's been some, but do we really know just how satisfying? Because in, in, in our contemporary time, we talk about, like, we, we make art that includes stories about bad sex. Obviously, do plenty of the alternative, but we, we, we make art that, you know, consists of, the, of these various male characters who have no regard for female satisfaction, right? And and you know different different stories that are that that, that uh, try to convey different ethics on the subject. Well, so this clearly has been a reality across time, and so it hasn't just been um, sh- straight up good good sex being the only producer of children across time. And so you can have women conceivably go in a lifetime married to a man. You know, married and, and all that comes with that and, and before it and and and, ne- and never having sex be a very good experience or almost never um unfortunately it you know from where i'm sitting i i i can come in and encounter stories like that so it's it's not it's not just an open a wide open playing field that's played out especially because because of ignorance on the subject so if, I mean, and this is where a whole new door was open, was that, wait, men don't know that they're bad. <laughs> they don't know that they're not paying attention because they don't know that there's something that they need to pay attention to. You see, ladies, we're in there. We are having a good time. And it, and it almost doesn't matter how it goes. It feels good. But the thing is, even though it's something that we are doing together, you know, one-on-one, we're doing it together, we have a total different set of feelings for. And so it's always good for us. Right off the bat there, the, the question doesn't automatically arise, hey, is it also good for her, who's experiencing a total different set of physical sensations, 
that we will you know, not know. We will not come to understand. And so the question never even arises that it might not be pleasurable. That's, that's the issue, ladies. A real, a real palpable issue holding back this promise, promising evolution that I'm talking about. And, and if you think this is going nowhere, hold on, because it's going, it's going very important places, this discussion. What happens? What happens at, at female fulfillment? What happens when every last woman comes, when men and women come together? And why do we use that language, come? I think I'll have to go back to Jordan Peterson to answer that question. But what happens? Think about it. Think about it if, if across time, going backward across time, there was less and less and less female satisfaction. What if over millennia, we've been cycling upward in female satisfaction to get to this point? What does it mean? What does it mean? What, what does female satisfaction mean if it depends on the attentiveness and the care of men? What does it mean that there's more attentiveness and, and caring of men in the world and that this is having an effect on the population in various ways. It's a, it's a, these are ridiculously simple sort of questions that, you know, that have, I think have gone unasked because we don't just act in the world. We, we do things, you know, for instance, take, take our rituals, uh, many of which exist within religious systems that are ritual, rituals that are carried out to remind us of an idea. One of the things that people miss out on, though, is that we are, we are carrying out various rituals in daily life or, um, or in yearly life that are not organized in the same fashion. They're not drawn out to, 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 to as any sort of practice or exercise. They are, they're part of life. We're, we're carrying out um, metaphorical representations of other stories. I don't want to get into examples of that right now. But, you know, if, if once we had to tell stories and about a god king with eyes all around his head in order to convey the, 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 the point of attention, you know, today we, we do the opposite. We say, look at that guy <laughs> or gal. Look at her paying attention. <laughs> and, uh, and so much the same way we... We, we do little things in our lives that have so much metaphoric meaning that we're not attentive to. And I guess one of the things I've drawn on is that sex is one of those things. And how, how we do it is, is one of those things. It's a, how we do it reveals something about who we are. What we think about it, obviously, you know, is it, 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 it can, can definitely have an effect on how we think about other things in life. And obviously how we think about it is going to approach how we do it. And so all of that is going to be baked into procreative outcomes, biological outcomes, because parenting is just the next step after childbirth and conception. And, and so what kind of people you have, you know, are having sex <laughs> and how that sex is, is going to have uh, an effect on who's raising children, how they're raising them, what expectations, and, and what skills, what, what strength of character are those people going to be? Are they going to raise people who pay attention? That brings us uh, up to 
today very well. My understanding of the Zoomer generation, and, and I think uh, Gen Y millennials as well, is is these are two of the most empathetic generations. That that's a major characteristic, and 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 Gen Z I think is going to be taking it to a whole other level. You know, we're, we're maybe in an accelerated, uh, pardon me, an an exponential phase of the trend of empathy across societies. Uh, I think Gen Z is going to be very, very, very self-aware and aware um, and, and, and empathetic. And and this this is essentially what I've been discussing. You know, awareness is, is just another term, and empathy um, is another term that tracks what I've been talking about for more than an hour now is is awareness and 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 trying to feel into the experience of another person persons so so we're now you know developing and 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 the, these children are coming of age the the most attentive uh caring empathetic self-aware generation that we can easily reflect upon in history. So I've asked, where have we come from? Why do we have the, the functions of, that we have sexually and the capacities? But has it been taking us somewhere already? And, you know, where should we go? If I'm on to something, which I'm pretty sure I am, then, then the question is, should we be emphasizing this? You know, I, because there's obviously... Not every man who looks like he loves a woman actually does. There's there's ways to play this game, right? And especially if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm getting on to the right trail with saying that 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 love is a feeling that is automatically conveyed in good sex, or may, maybe even in sex. But I I think it's you know matter of degrees here. Good sex. If I if I'm right about that, then then there's ways for men to play the game, right? Just, you know, just because a guy um, is a good sexual encounter doesn't mean that he cares about you. You know, he might just like having good sex, right? So there's there's ways to, to game this. And so there's questions about how far I really want to encourage discussion, I guess. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a secret better kept, but... I can't help but just just be in awe over this over this realization that sex is supposed to feel good because and we know it because we have the capacity for it to be good and and that because it can feel good it should feel good and that will have a biological imprint that will have an evolutionary imprint upon society because we don't just, you know, we don't just pass on our regular um, family characterological traits, right? We, you know, as a, in, in through evolution, we, we carry on now vast sums of knowledge and technology, right? Then then influence us, and I think I've already mentioned that. So 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 attentiveness is going as I've just said, you know, if it's if if I think it's mushrooming, it's growing exponentially through the population. And, and it's a feature that's baked into good sex, which is, is what's desirable for, to, you know, to encourage a procreative population, then, then that is going to be a, you know, it's going to cause some sort of nonlinear evolutionary 
consequence. And so we 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 just rifle into the, or I should say, we rocket into an, a, another stratosphere of human awareness, which leads me to Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> uh, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, we we owe, we owe important ideas about the study of physics, but it's it's not very well known that. Newton was also an esotericist. Uh, I guess more accurately, I should say, he was an alchemist. And it's just not widely known, as far as I can tell, that that's the case. But um, even John Maynard Keynes, the unfortunate father of our current monetary economic system, uh, was very interested in this fact about Newton. And he purchased Newton's alchemical notes, esoteric-type notes, um, um, his journals, that is. And so, and the reason I'm talking about Newton is because I think that he, I think it was he, this is without me doing any research, so I apologize if I'm going to mix up people, but he still sets the stage for being someone who would be interested in this. Newton calculated when the apocalypse was going to happen. And I can't remember the exact date range that he estimated, but it includes, it includes the day that I'm recording this. So it was a window of time starting somewhere around 2000 and ending, I think, around 2060. Uh, I could be just a ways off with that, but the point is it includes 2021. Well, apocalypse uh, comes from uh, a Greek root. Uh, it may, maybe it's even, maybe it, pardon me, yes. It, you know, we get it from the Greeks. And... And the, the way that they meant apocalypse was not the end of the world, but uh, a revolution, as in a, a big turning change. Or, and, and, and so this association is really important. You know, apocalypse is heavily associated with the word revelation because this you know, Armageddon, doomsday apocalypse, is, is written in the book of Revelation. And we, I think that we have this idea that, that Revelation is supposed to be about the end, revealing the end. But what if the Revelation is more like a, a, um, a noun than a verb, and, it, and it's, it's a human one. It's a human revelation. It's humanity's revelation. And what would, what would humanity have a revelation about? What would it take to have a revelation? It would take attention. It takes awareness. Takes everything you have to to observe reality with rigor, and observe yourself, and observe other people, and to and to and to treat them with respect because you know that they have their own mind and their own feelings. That is empathy. The empathy begins the moment you realize you don't know everything. In fact, you know next to nothing about other people and their experience. Just think for a moment about about how differently people feel about things. I mean, feel, you know, right down into their bodies. How differently two different people can feel about losing their pet cat. Similar relationships, maybe, with, the, with their pet cat, but, but one of them feels very little, perhaps, when, when their cat dies. And the other sobs for two days, right? Think about that, the, the variance in feeling. And the moment you realize just how different we are all are, and just how we have to go through our own unique experiences, and we have to be the leaders of our awareness and the, 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 the captains of our soul 
You know, that's that's real empathy. Not just not just trying to get in touch with somebody's in, in you know emotions in the moment, but but getting in touch with the fact that they have all their moments. When you get there, you come to this massive opening, this this huge awakening, and you realize I can't I can't get in the way of that. I have to respect all these people, every last one of them, by by not demanding things they don't want to give, feelings they can't feel, feelings they don't want to feel, actions that conflict with their feelings. That's that's an awakening. That's a revelation. And where are we in time? We've just we've just given birth to the the most empathetic and self-aware generation that we've kept track of. We're in the apocalypse. We're in the revolution of mind, of humanity's mind. And that is when the story almost came full circle for me. You see, I started somewhere in a chain of thoughts with randomly landing on the fact that trees, usually they grow up, you know, they're a tree because they grow one branch from one meristem straight up, you know, that divides them categorically from shrubs and so forth, right? Or at least most trees are apically dominant that way. But when you chop the top off of a young tree, more than not, per, per my observations, two or more branches, um, two or more apically dominant, again, pointing towards the, straight up towards the sky, branches come out rather than just one. I thought, wow, that's fascinating. You know, the, it's really fascinating. It's like the, the plant's designed to do one, just one. Why doesn't just one come out? And sometimes probably just one does come out. But this is a reason we see forked trees so often is because it's actually, it, you know, a trauma like this leads to two. And so so near the, the this train of, of many thoughts about what I've been explaining about sex and evolution was the story of Adam and Eve. And... And it's said that the story of Adam and Eve, as we know it, is actually uh, an allegory for a further past um, in which, you know, it's not that God took um, Adam's rib out and made Eve from it, but that that humanity was once a a species of hermaphrodites and, and that over time it separated into the two sexes. This is a... This is a really compelling story to me, just just because of the time, the, the area that we're living in now is is laden with with symbolism and and actions of people, and and I would I would say that that some some of the things we are acting out, you know, it's not just it's it, it's not just conflict, it's not just um, dialogue that needs to be had. We're we're acting out some things we're we, as if we're in a drama and 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 everything is thematic um we are acting some things out that that align very well with this idea of a a sexually uh, joined single being right and 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 then also the story about that that uh, being splitting into two halves uh, male and female man and woman what 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 accompanies that the femininity and masculinity and so i think we're at a we're in, we're not only at an amazing time in history for for that to be a prominent story we're at an amazing time in history 
in the history of awareness in which we have immense knowledge and and an immense um, characterological uh, awareness. We, you know, we you know so we we have all you know virtually all the knowledge that's ever been formed, almost all of it, and we have um, really really well-equipped people or we seem to be creating a bunch of a bunch of well-equipped people to to be aware of all of it that's that's amazing and in order to get here it it, it took took sex took took people being born right and and that is linked that subject is linked to attention ought to boggle the mind a little bit at least a little bit so you have the one of the fathers of physics being also this closet alchemist who calculated that the apocalypse was going to occur at some point in time. Oh, and by the way, we're living in it. Oh, and by the way, the apocalypse from an esoteric, that is an interior secret understanding, the apocalypse is about revelation and revolution, not about the end of the world, maybe the end, but also the beginning, right? That's that, that being a revolution, a full turn of something, not just a stoppage. Oh, and by the way, um, there's this force that could be contributing to it. You know, what would you calculate the timing on if you were Newton? How would you, how would you estimate, uh, I forget, a 50-ish year window? Probably going to need to look it up. How would you estimate that? On what criteria, whether, whether your understanding of the apocalypse was... Um, you know, what, what, what would be your understanding? No matter what it was, whether it was the end of the world or a, a revolution of the world, what, what would you base your criteria on? You know, how would you calculate it? Well, if, if you shared my similar um, understanding of it as an awakening, this apocalypse, this turn of things being an awakening, uh, 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 because it, you know, as in awakening awareness through revelation, mental mental revelation being the key to awakening if that's what you thought the apocalypse was then then how would you base that on what 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 would give you a time estimate well one of the things that you would consider would be generations and the transfer of information across generations and the stage setting and the teaching and the example setting of of awareness or or the or the cyclical nature of human behaviors across generations that i to me if you if you were to estimate that that humanity would have its awakening of mind at some distant point in the future you 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 would include generations and you would have to have some sort of insight into how to estimate how many generations it would take you know if you weren't just a time traveler right so you would need to you would need to have some theory about this. So it's a very compelling story to me, and it's very compelling because the same sort of people who would be interested in this sort of material, this esoteric take, uh, are are heavily interested and tied to the history of goddess worship of Venus um, being a being a prime example, and we. We have um, reiterations of Venus all, all the way up into contemporary period, and 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 what do we have now? It, it, what do we what have we had going on since the '60s? Is is the is the women's revolution, the feminist 
um, waves that have come and the you know the call for the empowerment of women the to to um, excel in in various um, facets of life and to to be able to live lives of choice and and um, you know be be exalted in in the fields that they want to be exalted in right you know so it's it we've we've pretty well opened up the avenues you know so many professions today were not were not really all that open to women um 60 70 80 years ago um different types of positions within business structures etc and today those gates are i would say fairly wide open no, no matter you know who might complain the the avenues are are very open for almost any path that, that the woman wants to take and and i'm not saying you know if, if this is something that gets your goat then you know I'm, I'm also not trying to say that there's no farther to go but i'm saying this ties in to the topic at hand which which is undeniably um is important and is part of the same theme uh, that 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 women deserve for sex to be a great experience that for it to feel good they deserve to want it for that reason and i i haven't even touched on you know matters of passion matters of 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 attraction that that often have to do with much more than physicality but have to do with the things that we tell each other right that that is a motivation for sex you know how could I mean how how dare some of you say that that sex is just nothing that it's meaningless no matter with whom you have it how dare you how how dare you say that and then tell tell somebody next week that you're attracted to someone because of something that they said or what they believe how dare you how dare you feel that feeling in your in your loins and and then say that sex is meaningless people People around you deserve better than that absurdity. So here we are, where we're in an age of of increasing respect for women. We're in, we're in an age where attention is being paid to women, and and we're in an age of increasing attention. This is it's 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 a really much more interesting moment in time, you know, <laughs> than people give it credit. Even though, right, the last year has just been bonkers. <laughs> Maybe the last five years. Well, I don't know. The last like fifteen years have just been nutty. So uh, I'll even go back twenty. So just just wild and. And yet, it's even more fascinating than than all the stuff we've already been talking about and living, right? Because because this story of the age of awakenment and observance of women is is upon us. And and where is it going to go next? You know, what's what's it going to mean if if we go f- from where we are to you know uh, I don't know people actually going on dates again. <laughs> uh, People be going, you know what? I like you so much. I love you so much that I I want to be as so obvious and committed to that that I want to marry you, even though I'm afraid of divorce. <laughs> you know, what what people did that and and they got into having great sex that also had offspring 
come along with it graciously uh, graciously received and raised up to be thoughtful and attentive people. What would happen? Would that not advance the human race? I'm, I'm, I'm just, it's staring you blindly in the face. I mean, blankly. At the, <laughs> me, me, I guess, you know, but it's staring you right in the face that the key to humanity's excellence would be to more fully embrace good sex. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I'm not saying that we are fully on that path. You know, there's a lot of, like, there's so many, I, I know that there's so many potential listeners, um, you know, so many people, if I were to broadcast this basically on, on a public network, right? Like, there's so many, so many people who would not receive this well because they're, you know, they're, they're up against the idea of pleasure seeking and hedonism, and they can't separate that uh, antagonism very well from the need for sex to be pleasurable. You know, it's like, no, not everybody has to just be irresponsibly chasing sex. That That's not what this is about. This is about the fact that when you're having sex, it's supposed to be good, no matter, no matter what context you're in, it's supposed to be good. That's it's biologically necessary because so that it can drive us to want more, so that it can make us some children. It's amazing, an amazing story, an amazing story of incentive, goodness, and it's an amazing story of development. How long is this? You know, how long has this been going on? And, and how real is? You know, I, I I get it. I'm putting forth an assertion, but how real is it? I think probably very real. But just think about it. Think about how many times there was a sexual union, a lot, a lot of times, and how many of those times were specifically because it's pleasurable for one party at minimum, all right? And then how many times more did those parties, those same two parties, get together because it was pleasurable for both? And love was experienced and communicated, even if people didn't recognize it, per se. Still plenty of times. And more of that breeds what? More of that. It's a brilliant story. It's a lovely story. And I think it needed told. And I'm, I'm blown away by the idea that I might be, possibly be, the, the first person to tell it. I, surely, surely there's someone who, who has written a whole book about this. But it should be a more popular book. It is time for me to sign off. Time for me to thank you. I'm very grateful for your time and attention since we just discussed how valuable that is. And I hope that this is more than something to purely amuse you. I hope this is something that adds to your life. Uh, I'm thinking about spending significantly more time on the topic, uh, not necessarily on this show. But uh, so again, thank you and have a good week. I'm going to leave you with more sounds of Pogo. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful.